Well, welcome. I'm so thankful to have you with us today. We appreciate you joining us for this live stream service, and we do look forward to next week. Uh, we're excited about being able to begin gathering together again. It'll look different, and it'll feel different for a little while, but ultimately we hope that as we move through the summer that we'll begin to see more normal things that we're used to on a regular basis. But we trust that as the Lord leads you and gives you confidence and peace to come, that you will plan to join us uh, next week for Pentecost Sunday. Of course, this is Memorial Day weekend, and this is the weekend that we remember the sacrifice of men and women who have spilled their blood in the service of our country. I imagine that all over America in the various veterans' cemeteries that there are flags that have been placed in memory of those men and women who served our country. Certainly in Arlington Cemetery, there will be those flags that will be placed. If you've ever seen one of those displays, you know how impressive that is. But it's also a reminder that our nation came to us uh, as a result of God's goodness to us, yes, but it also came to us through men and women who were willing to serve this land and who were willing to give their lives. And tomorrow's Memorial Day. I hope you'll t stop and take a few moments to think about those who sacrifice themselves so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we have in America, as imperfect as we are as a nation. Is there any other place you'd rather live on the planet? I don't think so. This is the place. And we are thankful that God's allowed us to live here and to give us the privileges that we enjoy. But of course, that came at great sacrifice. And on Memorial Day tomorrow, and even today, I hope that you'll stop and you'll think and thank the Lord for those who have served our country. As a matter of fact, I'd like to begin today by doing that very thing on this Memorial Day weekend. And I want to pray together with you for just a few moments. Heavenly Father, we do stop on this Memorial Day weekend to say thank you. Thank you for our nation, as imperfect as we are, with as many faults as we have. Lord, we are thankful that you allowed us to be born in this land and we so appreciate the freedoms that we enjoy here. Lord Jesus, we realize that those came at great sacrifice and at great cost to men and women's lives. Today there are graves that mark the places where the bodies are laid of men and women who served this country and who died in their service to this nation. Lord, we can go to Arlington and we can visit the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and we're reminded that they're the bodies of others that we don't even know who they are, not even know their families, but we honor them because they serve this country and they enabled us to be able to have the freedoms that we enjoy in this nation. I pray today, Lord, that you'll help us not to forget tomorrow we'll get caught up with a lot of activities, a lot of functions that'll be going on that I know we're going to enjoy and you intend for us to enjoy, but we must not forget that tomorrow we also must remember those who have paid with the ultimate sacrifice. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for America. Thank you for the men and women who serve this nation. Thank you especially on this Memorial Day weekend for the men and women who have spilled their blood and given their lives in the service of our country. Please bless their families today and this weekend with your peace and with your strength and with your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to find your place in your Bible with me at the book of Philippians as we continue our study through this book. 
And I want to read beginning in verse 19 down through verse 26. And I invite you to follow along with me. If you don't have your Bible in front of you, the words of these verses should be on your screens here in just a few moments. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supplication of the Spirit, or the supply, I should say, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. In being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress in joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Probably most of you have heard the name Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra passed away in 2015 And he's famous for what he accomplished in the world of baseball. 18 times as an all-star. 14 times he played in the World Series. And uh, 10 of those times they won the World Series. But maybe today what we remember him best for, at least most of us or many of us remember him best for, are what are called his yogi-isms. You know, those funny sayings that he would have. He says he didn't even know he was saying them at the moment. But when you stop and you analyze them and think about them, you realize just how funny they, they really are. For instance, it was Yogi Berra who said, it's like deja vu all over again. <laughs> sort of a redundant phrase, but you get the point, don't you? Or the time that he said, you better cut the pizza in four pieces because I'm not hungry enough to eat six. <laughs> You got to try to figure that out exactly what he means. Or think about the time that he said, Little League baseball is a very good thing because it keeps the parents off the streets. And certainly we need to keep the parents off the streets. Or one time he said, Pair up and freeze. <laughs> think about that. Pair up in threes. Or if you will, he, he used to say, I usually take a two hour nap from one to four. And so you get these funny statements that Yogi Berra made that he says he didn't even know he was making at the time, but when you stop and you look at them and you analyze them, they really are very comical and they, very, they are very funny. But, but the one I want to focus on today specifically is when he said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. You know, in life, it would be nice, wouldn't it, If when we came to a fork in the road, it didn't matter which side of the fork we chose, we knew that it ended up in a good place, a great place. If we took the left fork or we took the right fork, it didn't matter. We ended up in a great place. Well, in essence, that's what the Apostle Paul is describing for us here in the verses of Scripture that we've read today in Philippians chapter 1. He's expressing the sentiment of when you come to the fork, take it. Because either fork, either side of the fork that you take is going to lead you to a good place. Another way to say this is that he was saying, 
I want to tell you about a win-win proposition. There is no way for you to lose. And he talks about this win-win proposition. So before we look at all of that, let me take just a few moments and let me back up and let me tell you the backstory of where Paul is at this moment, what's going on in his life before we talk about his win-win fork in the road. The Apostle Paul had been in prison for four years, four years of his life. He was arrested in Jerusalem and he was held in Caesarea down by the Mediterranean Sea for two years unjustly held there without an opportunity for a trial to be released, he finally appeals his case to Caesar, and he's shipped off to Rome. It's a harrowing journey. You can read about it at the end of the book of Acts, but it's a harrowing journey that he's on. There's a shipwreck that takes place, but ultimately he arrives in Rome, and he's held in prison in Rome for two more years. Actually, it's house arrest. The Apostle Paul has to pay all of the expenses of living in this house, but he can't go anywhere. He's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Every six hours, the guard is chained. And this is not just any Roman guard. This is the Praetorium Guard. This is the elite guard of the Romans. These are the ones that were the secret service for the, for the Caesar. This is the, the group that took care of and watched after the Caesar. And so every six hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the Apostle Paul was chained to one of these elite guard. Well, the people in the city of Philippi are interested in what's going on in Paul's life. And so they send a young man by the name of Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus makes this journey, this long journey to get to Rome. And when he gets there, he's probably expecting to see that the gospel advance has stopped. He may be expecting to find the Apostle Paul discouraged because for four years he's been under arrest. But when he gets there, he finds exactly the opposite to be the case. He finds the Apostle Paul filled with joy. And he finds that the gospel is advancing in ways and to places that could never have been imagined. And so Paul sits down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he writes this letter to give a report back to this church in Philippi, this church that had helped him, this church that had supported him, this church that had partnered with him. He writes this letter to give a report back to them about what's going on in his life and to give them some instructions as well. And then he puts it in the hand of this young man and he takes it back to the city of Philippi. It's in these circumstances, Paul under arrest, going to ultimately have to stand before the Caesar. His life is in jeopardy. And yet he's filled with joy, and the gospel of Christ is advancing even into Caesar's household through the Praetorium Guard that the Apostle Paul writes those words in chapter 1, verse 21, when he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a fork in the road. And as Yogi Berra would say, you just take it. But this is a win-win situation. It doesn't matter which side you take, whether you take the left fork or the right fork, either way is a win-win situation, the Apostle Paul says. Actually, in most of our translations, it's not said strongly enough. There's a verb that is added twice in most of our translations. What it actually says in the Greek text is this, for to me to live, Christ 
and to die, gain. In other words, by taking out the verb, he's emphasizing, he's, he's strengthening what he's saying. He's making sure that everybody gets the point. For to me to live, Christ, and to die, gain. In other words, the apostle Paul had come to the fork in the road, and he took it. And it didn't matter which side of the fork he took. The reality is, either way, he was in a win-win situation. Either he was going to live, and his life was lived for Christ. Or if he died, he was with Christ, and that was gain. I've had the experience on a number of occasions to visit people that receive bad news that they only had a short time to live. After I learned about their circumstances, I would go to make visits to these precious individuals thinking that, that maybe I could offer them some encouragement during a difficult moment in their lives. But often what I found is that I came away more encouraged than the encouragement that I gave to them. And the reason is that they recognized that they were in a win-win situation. I've heard people say something like this. Whether I go home to my house on such and such street or I go home to heaven, it'll be okay either way. I mean, for them, it was a win-win situation. For to me to live, Christ, and to die, gain. I can't lose in this situation. I can come to the fork and I can take it because either pathway leads to a great future and either pathway leads to something that is good. And I've heard people comforted because they knew they were in a win-win situation. And rather than me encouraging them by hearing them talk about that faith and that confidence that they enjoyed, they ended up encouraging me. Earlier this year, I went to see a man that learned he only had a few weeks left to live. After some general conversation that he and I shared together, I asked him the question about how he felt about what the doctors had told him, and I'll never forget his response. He told me that he couldn't explain his emotions exactly, but he knew that everything was going to be okay. Now, don't misunderstand that, but not being able to explain his emotions, he meant that his feelings were hard to put into words. In other words, there was such peace and such grace that he was experiencing at these moments in his life that it was impossible to express that in words. And do you realize the reason why he had such confidence, why there was such peace, and why there was such grace? It was because he knew he had come to a fork in the road and he was going to take it. And he was in a win-win situation. If he went home to his house at such and such street, it was Christ. And if he went home to heaven to be with Christ, it was gain. And he had no reason to fear, and there was no reason for anxiety, and he was able to say with confidence, it's okay. I can't explain the depth of emotions that I feel at this moment. I can't explain all that has come over me or how I feel. You can't put it into words. I just know that it's a win-win situation and everything is okay. Well, that's how the Apostle Paul felt at this moment. Under arrest, house arrest, chained to a Roman guard 24-7, knowing that he was ultimately going to have to stand before the Caesar and he could either lose his life or he could be set free to continue his service to Christ. But either way, for the Apostle Paul, he came to the fork in the road, and he took it. 
because Paul was at peace. Paul was at peace with either direction because both directions led him to a better place. Now, as you think about these words from the Apostle Paul, there's three things that I want to point out to you that I think are expressed by the Apostle Paul and really are things that we want to learn in our own lives as well. Things that the Apostle Paul wanted in his own heart and things that I believe you and I want in our own hearts. First of all, he wanted to be faithful. He wanted to be faithful. If you look back with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, and notice again what he says. For I know that this, that is his present circumstances, that is where he is at this moment, his state of things at this moment. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now think about that word deliverance for a few moments. When he says deliverance, he can mean at least one of three things. Deliverance can be a reference to his death at the hands of Caesar uh, so that he's ushered right into the very presence of Jesus Christ, that gain that he's just been talking about or will talk about in verse 21. And so deliverance can be from death, through death, into the very presence of Jesus Christ. The second thing it can mean, not just, death, not just deliverance through death, it can mean deliverance from death. That is, that God could deliver him from the hands of Caesar so that he could go back to his life. He could go back to his ministry. Or thirdly, when he says that this is going to turn out for my deliverance, deliverance can refer to his present circumstances. Deliverance from being ashamed or of being tentative or intimidated when he has to stand before Caesar, and he has to give a defense of his life and a defense of the gospel. Now, which is it? Deliverance through death into the presence of Jesus, deliverance from death so that he can go on living his life and carrying out his ministry, or deliverance in the present circumstances so that when he stands before Caesar, he'll stand boldly and confidently, and he'll defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I believe it's the third. I think when he says here that this will turn out for my deliverance. I think he was saying to us that he knew that he was going to be saved from intimidation, that he was going to be saved from his fear and being tentative, and that he was going to have a confidence that he could stand before the Caesar without intimidation to spread the gospel of Jesus. You say, why do you say that? I say that because of what he goes on to say in verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. He didn't want to be ashamed. Where would Paul be ashamed? In dying and going to heaven? Where would Paul be ashamed? In being released to continue his ministry? The place where Paul could be ashamed is when he stood before the Caesar and he didn't stand before the Caesar faithful to God, faithful in the defense of the gospel, faithful in defense of the ministry of his life, that he became intimidated in some way and he didn't speak up and he didn't say, what he needed to say 
Now, the Apostle Paul, when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance, he was in essence saying, in the present circumstances, I know that this is going to turn out for my deliverance, that I'm going to be delivered from being ashamed, that I'm going to be delivered from being intimidated, I'm going to be delivered from timidity, and I'm going to stand before the Caesar, and I'm going to speak in defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how is that kind of faithfulness going to come about in his life? Well, he tells you at the end of verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through, here is how it comes about, through your prayer, that's the human instrumentality, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's the divine instrumentality. In other words, Paul could stand here in this jail cell or this jail, this house arrest chained to this Roman guard, And he could say about himself that I know that these present circumstances are going to be okay, that I'm going to be delivered from timidity. I'm going to be delivered from fearfulness. I'm going to be delivered from tentativeness. I'm going to be delivered from those things because you're praying for me. And the Spirit of God is enabling me and helping me. And I'm going to stand there before the Caesar, and I'm going to give my testimony without fear. I'm going to give my testimony and stand true to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in this difficult moment of his life. In other words, he could do it not because of his intellect or because of his ability. He could do it because of the prayers of the Philippian believers and because of the supply of the Spirit of God in his life. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying In verses 19 and 20, when he talks about his deliverance, he's not talking about deliverance through death into the presence of Jesus or deliverance from death so that he goes on in his ministry. I believe he's talking about deliverance from timidity or intimidation so that he won't be ashamed, that when he stands before the Caesar, he'll stand there in defense of the gospel and he'll say what he needs to say and he'll be faithful through it all. The year was A.D. 155, and the persecution against Christians swept across the Roman Empire and came to the city of Smyrna. The proconsul of Smyrna put out an order that the bishop of Smyrna, whose name was Polycarp, should be found, arrested, and brought to the public arena for execution. After they found him, they brought him before thousands of spectators that were screaming and crying out for his blood. But the proconsul had compassion on this man who was almost 100 years of age at this time. He signaled to the crowd to be silent. And he spoke to Polycarp and he said, Curse the Christ and live. The crowd waited for the old man to answer. And in what was an amazingly strong voice for a man his age and in his shape, he said these words, Eighty and six years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. How dare I blaspheme the name of my king and Lord. And with that, Polycarp became a martyr. But my friends, he was faithful. Even in those moments when he could have been intimidated, it could have been timidity in his soul, when he could have been fearful, he was faithful in the midst of those things. He was faithful to the end. There's a story that I read about in the New York Times about a young man by the name of Derek Lamb. Derek is a courageous young Christian leader who lives in Hong Kong. 
And in 2017, he wrote this article that's found in the New York Times. It's about the suppression of human rights for Christians in China. Lamb writes these words. Since I was 16 years old, I have wanted to be a pastor. I was raised in a Christian family in Hong Kong that urged me to live by biblical principles. Those biblical principles have also informed my democratic activism for the past six years. And it is for that reason that I am likely to be jailed next month and that I will be barred from ever becoming a pastor. Lamb in this article provided examples of what he called an unprecedented erosion of religious freedom in Hong Kong, especially for Christians. Believers, he says, were being forced to worship in underground churches, and the government was tearing down church buildings. And the only way to avoid trouble, Lamb says, was for the churches to stay quiet, to stay small, or to bow down to the current leader of China, Xi Jinping, which, by the way, is still the current leader of China. Well, this brave young man declared, I won't make Jesus bow down to him. He writes, Although there is nothing I would love more than to become a pastor and preach the gospel in Hong Kong, I will never do so if it means making Jesus subservient to Xi Jinping. Instead, I will continue to fight for religious freedom in Hong Kong, even if I have to do it from behind bars. What I ask of you, he says, is to keep Hong Kong in your prayers as we seek to find light amid the sea of darkness descending upon us. Those are the words of a young man who is saying, as the Apostle Paul said, I'm going to be delivered through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of God, I'm going to stand true even in the face of all of the opposition and all of those that are coming against me and all of the threats that are being made toward me. I'm going to stand true and I'm going to be faithful even in the midst of threatening circumstances. Think about it for a few moments. Ultimately, the Apostle Paul was released from this first imprisonment. It was going to be three to five more years, and Paul would end up under Roman arrest again, but this time he wouldn't be under house arrest, chained to a guard 24-7. This time he would be in the Mamertine prison. That's where you held the, the prisoners that were ultimately going to be executed. And we can read about how Paul felt in those final moments of his life by reading in 2 Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 4, listen to the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul even to the last moment of his life before he becomes a martyr for the cause of Jesus. Listen to what he says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You hear those words? I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The Apostle Paul, in those final moments of his life, could say, I finished. I have kept the faith. I have been faithful. Even standing before the Caesar, he would not acquiesce. He would not surrender. He would not ask Jesus to bow down to Nero, even if it meant him being set free 
Here is the Apostle Paul and his faithfulness to the very end of his life. Let me ask you a question. What causes us to surrender our faithfulness to Jesus? What intimidation, what fearful thing, what group of people, what powerful people? When they put the pressure on us and the stress is placed on us and they begin trying to push us into the mold, what does it take for you to give up your faith? What does it take for you to be silenced when it comes to the defense of the gospel? The Apostle Paul says, because of the prayers of the people in Philippi and the supply of the Spirit of God, I know that my present circumstances, I'm going to be delivered from timidity and from fear and intimidation. And I'm going to stand there with boldness and I'm not going to be ashamed of Jesus. I'm going to speak out with all of my heart in defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul first wanted to be faithful. Do you want to be faithful? The Bible says it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Secondly, the Apostle Paul wanted to be fearless. The Apostle Paul wanted to be fearless. You find that in verses 20 and 21, and specifically in verse 21. For to me to live, Christ, and to die, gain. Do you know what the greatest fear for most people is? The greatest fear for most people is death. Most people are afraid of what's going to happen in death. And so they cower away, and the Apostle Paul comes, and he says, I don't want to cower away. I want to stand faithful to Jesus Christ, even if I'm standing before the Caesar, and I want to stand there fearlessly, whether it's by life or by death. Because for me, death is gain. I don't want to cower in some kind of fear when it comes to the possibility of even losing my life. It was Nelson Mandela who said, courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. He goes on, the brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. It may be that fear sometimes rules our hearts when we start thinking about the consequences of standing for Jesus Christ. That Paul says, I want to be fearless. I want to stand there before the Caesar with boldness in defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of your prayers and the supply of the Spirit to not be ashamed to stand there and to declare myself as a follower of Jesus and to defend the gospel of Jesus even if it means I have to die. I want to stand there fearlessly. This kind of courage reminds me of an Old Testament story. It's the story that you find from the life of Esther. Esther is a story that many of you don't know, but you ought to learn. You ought to go back and read and make sure you understand. She was chosen by the Persian king to be his queen, but he didn't know that she was Jewish in her heritage. When a plan was hatched by an evil man by the name of Haman to destroy all the Jewish people, Esther was called on to risk her life to save her people. Her cousin Mordecai said, you've come to this place for such a time as this. God has put you here for such a time as this. And in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, in that very unmoment, in that very moment, Esther steps forward and she says, if I perish, I perish. 
You see, we have a hard time understanding that. But in that culture, that Persian culture, if the king didn't call for his queen, if she just showed up, she could die for doing so. And Esther's going to have to approach the king without having been summoned by the queen, by the king. The queen is going to have to appear before the king without having been summoned by him. And what does she say? Like the apostle Paul, I want to be fearless. She says, if I perish, I perish. That's the kind of courage that the apostle Paul wanted to display as he was standing before Caesar. That's the kind of courage he wanted to display as he lived out his life. For to me to live, Christ, and to die, I'm not afraid of it either because it's gain. And to be honest, that's the kind of courage that I want. That's the kind of fearlessness that I want. I'm not there yet. But I want God to work that kind of fearlessness in my own heart. And I bet there's a lot of you that want God to work that kind of fearlessness in your hearts as well, that you won't be afraid even in the face of death. That you can stand there with a confidence that you belong to the Lord. Mark Batterson is a pastor and an author, a contemporary of our day. And he illustrates this kind of fearlessness about a modern day, from a modern day martyr's story in his book, Chase the Lion. I want to read it to you. He writes, with his hands tied behind his back, missionary J.W. Tucker was beaten. And then with 60 of his Christian compatriots, he was thrown into the crocodile-infested Pamaconde, Bamaconde River. It wasn't ISIS or Al-Qaeda who claimed responsibility. The attack took place on November the 24th, 1964, at the hands of the Congolese rebels. Our natural instincts, he writes, our natural instincts, he writes, is to feel sorry for Tucker, whose earthly life was seemingly cut short. But life can't be cut short when it lasts for all eternity. I like that phrase. Life can't be cut short when it lasts for all eternity. A holy empathy for his wife and children who survived the terrorist attack is biblically mandated. But he goes on, but heaven gained a hero, a hero in a long line of heroes who traced their genealogy back to the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He continues, in the grand scheme of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, eternal gain infinitely offsets earthly pain. God doesn't promise us happily ever after. He promises so much more than that, happily forever after. It was that eternal perspective that inspired J.W. Tucker to risk his earthly life for the gospel. Tucker didn't fear death because he had already died to self. It was an uncalculated, it wasn't an uncalculated risk that led J.W. Tucker into the Congo during a civil war. He counted the cost with his missionary friend Morris Plotz. Listen, Morris tried to convince his friend not to go. He said prophetically, if you go in, you won't come out. To which Tucker responded, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. That's the kind of fearlessness that God wants to work in all of our hearts. That's the kind of fearlessness that the Apostle Paul was expressing in Philippians chapter 1 
When he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he was saying, not only will I be faithful to that last breath of my life, he was saying, I'm going to be fearless. And it wasn't because it was something he worked within himself. It was something that came through the prayers, the human instrumentality of those Philippian believers praying for him, and something that came through divine instrumentality, the provision of the Spirit of God who stood with him and helped him. As a matter of fact, you know those people I was telling you about earlier that came to the fork in the road and took it and were in a win-win circumstance and said that it was hard to describe their feelings and their emotions? Do you know why they could face life with that kind of fearlessness? It was because God was helping them in those moments. And that kind of fearlessness comes through the prayers that are offered on behalf of others and through the supply of the Spirit of God in our lives. And every one of us should desire to have that kind of fearlessness. You know, we've been living these last few weeks with such an intensity of fear. And some fear is healthy. It helps us to avoid things that can harm us or hurt us. But some people live with an unhealthy sense of fear. We need to ask God to give us that sense of fearlessness as God gave it to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said, I want to be faithful. Then he said, I want to be fearless. But then finally, the Apostle Paul said he wanted to be fruitful. Verses 22 to 26, notice what he goes on to say, verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh... This will mean, here it is, fruit from my labor. He goes on to say, you know, I don't know which one to choose, whether to go to be with Christ or whether to stay here. He's wrestling within himself which of these things is best. He's struggling within himself, but when you get down to verse 25, he's considered it long enough, and listen to what he says, in being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all. In other words, he says, I I know. I don't know if God revealed it to him supernaturally. I don't know if just considering the circumstances and recognizing that his task wasn't finished yet and therefore God was going to extend his life a little bit longer. I, I don't know exactly how Paul came to this conviction within his soul, but he came to this conviction within his soul where he knew that he was going to have more fruitfulness of his life. In other words, he was going to have opportunity to continue to serve Jesus Christ and to have an impact in the lives of other people. You say, what does it mean to be fruitful here? Well, he tells you at the end of verse 25, he says, I shall remain and continue with you all for, here it comes, your progress and joy of faith. What does it mean to be fruitful? It means to help people to grow in their faith, and it means to carry the gospel to others who need to know Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul recognized that he wanted to be fruitful. He wanted to spend the last days of his life in a fruitful fashion. You know, I can imagine that Paul could have thought to himself, you know, I've been unjustly in prison for the last four years plus of my life. I've been ill-treated over and over and over again. When Caesar lets me go, if Caesar lets me go, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to rent a room down by the Mediterranean. I'm going to rent a room down by the ocean. I'm going to rent a room along a riverbank somewhere, and I'm just going to prop my feet up, and I'm going to relax for the rest of the days of my life. That wasn't what the Apostle Paul wanted. 
Paul wanted every moment of his life for the rest of his life to be fruitful for the cause of Jesus Christ. And he wasn't going to slow down if he was released. He wasn't looking for ease and comfort. He wasn't looking for retirement. He was looking for fruitfulness of his life. Now, here's something interesting for you to know. We know about three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. They're recorded for us in the book of Acts. But the book of Acts ends with Paul, but it doesn't tell us what happens next. And we have to reconstruct that by looking at other books of the Bible and looking at historical accounts that are given about the Apostle Paul. So here's what we know. We know that the Apostle Paul is ultimately released from that first Roman imprisonment. He doesn't go look for a room somewhere to relax and retire for the rest of the days of his life. He says, I want to be fruitful. And so he gets to work in what we could call and what many call his fourth missionary journey. And if this reconstruction I'm about to give you is accurate, I think you'll see that, in fact, he was fruitful. His fourth missionary journey included a mission to Spain, a place that he had said earlier he wanted to go. It included ministry on the island of Crete. It included ministry in Ephesus. There were stops in Miletus, in Troas. There were visits to various cities in, the Mas in Macedonia. There was a visit to Corinth, and finally, he ends up at Nicopolis. And it's probably, possibly at Nicopolis that he's ultimately arrested for the second time, and he's taken back to Rome, and this time put in that Mamertine prison, that prison where they hold those men that are going to be executed. What does he do during those years intervening between that first arrest that first imprisonment in Rome and that second imprisonment in Rome, does he relax and take it easy? No. He gets as busy as possible because he understands that to be fruitful, it means to help others to progress in their faith, and it means to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he just kept on serving until finally he died as a martyr. Can I tell you something about fruitfulness? A lot of times we serve and we don't always see the results of the service that we render. But we ought to serve Jesus Christ anyway. We ought to sow the seeds anyway and leave the results up to God. I'm reminded of the story of the well-known American missionary Adoniram Judson. He arrived in Burma, what's called Myanmar, in 1812, and he died 38 years later in 1850. During those years of his service, he suffered a lot I mean a lot for the cause of the gospel. He was imprisoned and tortured. He was kept in shackles. His wife, Anna, died during that period. He was so devoted to her. It says that he would go out every day and he would sit by her, by her graveside. He was so depressed. He would sit out there by her graveside day after day. Three years after his passing, he wrote these words. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. Have you ever been so depressed that that's how you felt? Adoniram's faith sustained him, and he threw himself into the task that he believed that God had called him to do, which was the translation of the Bible. The New Testament was already finished. It was already printed, but now he wanted to finish the Old Testament, and he did so by 1860, 1834, excuse me. By 1834, 
When he was there, there were, were between 12 and 25 progr- professing Christians, between 12 and 25 professing Christians, and there were no churches. At the 150th anniversary of the translation of the Bible into the Burmese language, Paul Borthwick was addressing a group that was celebrating Judson's work. And just before he began to speak, he noticed in small print on the first page the words translated by Reverend A. Judson. So Borthwick turned to his interpreter, a Burmese man by the name of Matthew, and he asked him, he said, Matthew, what do you know of this man? Matthew began to weep, and this is what he said. We know him. We know how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us, out of love for us. He died a pauper, but left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us, and every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, Reverend Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson didn't see the fruit of all of the work that he accomplished, but I'll guarantee you in heaven, he knows the results of what he did and the rewards are his because he was faithful, because he was fearless, because he was fruitful. He didn't want to waste his life. So many of us are wasting our lives on things that don't matter. And sometimes when we want to be fruitful, we have to recognize that while we sow the seed, it's God that gives the increase, and it may not be until years afterwards that the results are recognized. So let me ask you a question. The Apostle Paul says, this is my philosophy of life. Here's my philosophy of life. For me to live, Christ, and to die, gain. I want to take out the word Christ and the word gain, and I just want to put a blank line there. And I want you to fill it in. For me, to me, to live is, what's your answer? And to die, what's your answer? For to me to live is money, and to die is to leave it all behind. For to me to live is fame, and to die is to be forgotten. For to me to live is power, and to die is to lose it all. How do you fill in those blanks? How you fill in those blanks explains whether you're going to be faithful and fearless and fruitful in your spiritual life. Because if you can say with the Apostle Paul, for to me, for to me, to live Christ, and to die, gain I come to the fork in the road, and I take it. Because it doesn't matter which way I go. If I stay here, I'm faithful and fearless and fruitful. If I go the other fork, I'm in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. Don't throw your life away. It doesn't mean that you can't work. It doesn't mean you can't have ambition. It doesn't mean you can't have desire. It doesn't mean you can't climb the ladder of success. But all of those things are a means to an end. They are never the end in themselves. For to me to live, no matter what my job is, Christ. And to die, gain. 
That's the philosophy of life that every believer should have and the philosophy that transforms your life from one that's lived for the temporal to one that's lived for the eternal. Let's ask God to work that philosophy into every part of our lives.